Hello, ski racing fans, and welcome to the American Downhillers podcast, season three, episode two. I'm two-time Olympian Doug Lewis, and with me is world championship medalist AJ Kitt. AJ, where are you, and did you get to ski today? Yeah, I'm in Copper for the Norams here, and I uh, loaded the lift at 6.45, and I think I got off the hill at uh, 2.30 today, so yeah, I skied. All right. More, more or less standing around, though, watching kids ski race by me. All right. And three-time U.S. national champion and creator of American Downhillers, Marco Sullivan. Marco, where are you and did you get to ski today? I am at home in Tahoe City and it is snowing, but I mountain biked last night and I did not ski today. But the season is maybe growing slowly. All right. And our third partner, Kitzbühel winner, Darren Rolves. Good to have you here. Dean, did you get to ski today? Hey, boys. Uh, nope. Did not ski, but skiing tomorrow. Going for a little early uh, skin tour, I think, with the dog. But we're, we're just getting it. Um, I'm in Truckee about half an hour for Marco. So we're getting a white coat out here. It's kind of nice to see it. All right. Well, I'll go do a snow dance at the end of this uh, podcast. Today, we're going to talk about probably the most fun downhill on the circuit, but also one that does have some sharp teeth and has ended some careers. We are talking about Valgardena. And as our special guest, we have former champion on the Val Gardena course from Canada. He had a 14-year career from his first World Cup in 2005 in Chamonix, where he placed 14th, to his last one in Ori in 2018. He's a four-time Olympian. He joined fellow Canadian cowboy Eric Gay on the World Championship Super G podium with a bronze in 2017 and also won three World Cup downhills, including Val Gardena in 2009. Please welcome Manny Osborne Parody. Manny, where are you? And do you get to ski? Yeah, I am in Invermere, British Columbia. Uh, our mountain here is Panorama. I did not ski today, but um, I do have 18 days on snow already this year. So we're we're uh, we're kicking butt on the days on snow. Before we get to Val Gardena, Manny, looking back at all your successes, is there one race that you're most proud of and why that maybe is not, you know, on your resume? No, the, the one that I'm most proud of is actually my Val Gardena win. Uh, so I, if you want me to kick that off, I just yeah. talk about that one. Okay, talk about it. here we go. Uh, you know, the reason why I'm so proud of my Val Gardena win is it uh, it came after I had won in, in Lake Louise. I won the Super G earlier that year. And, um, you know, I, I was skiing well, uh, I went to Beaver Creek. I didn't have a great result after Lake Louise. Uh, I actually didn't do that well in the downhill at Lake Louise. And then, you know, we shipped over to Europe and I, I just needed to get a better feel for, for the snow. And I would, I just wasn't, I didn't have a great glide touch for whatever reason. I, I just kind of hadn't found it that year. And in the first training run, it was like the fifth gate. And I was, you know, it's on the flats. You go a couple of three big turns at the top and then you're on the flats and I, and it was the first time, you know, all summer you're you're kind of gliding, but you're on glaciers and you're not really on a track where you can really find the bottom of the snow. And I literally, I went off this little, the little hop halfway down the flats and I, I just like landed and I was like, ooh, my, like I just kind of shuffled sideways as I landed and I was like, oh, I got the bottom of the ski here. This is great, right? So uh, the first training run, I was pretty good. I think I was you know, in the teens somewhere and second training run, I was down to eighth or so. And I had not put together uh, a great run uh, at all, but I was, the, the times were pretty, uh, we're in there, we're in the mix. And 
why I'm so proud of it, I think, is just I, I the night before um, I did an interview. We we did a, a media scrum for for whatever reason I was there because I maybe because I had won Lake Louise or something because normally nobody wants to talk to you if you haven't done that well earlier in the year. And we did a media scrum, and it was uh, the last year that Walkoffer was racing. And he had won that a bunch of times, and he was like constantly top five. And they were, you know, they talked about, uh, you know, if I if I thought I could win and, you know, what that would mean to me, et cetera. And I, I just said, you know, this is the year that would really mean something to me if I won it this year. Like winning it next year is fine. You know, the life goes on. But he's retiring at the end of this year and this is the race and this is the year that I want to win this race because I think I truly have won the race if if I can beat Walkoffer. And uh, and I left thinking, you know, normally I think in the past I've said that a couple of times and then I'm like, oh man, I should just keep my mouth shut. But I left and uh, I was uber confident that I was like, that was the one time that I literally, I went to bed that night and I was like, I don't really know how I'll make a mistake and I can totally win this thing. And I just didn't feel like I'd put my foot in my mouth or anything. And uh, yeah, sure enough, um, just before uh, the the jumps, the, the last jump before uh, the camel bumps, I did make a quite a big mistake. Uh, but I don't know, it just, I was so confident that day. And I kind of was like, well, I guess, you know, there's no more mistakes. I can't have any more mistakes. That was the one I got away with. And uh, sure enough, yeah, I ended up winning that race. And uh, Walkoffer was third. I think Bodie was second. Um, or it was flipped one of those two. I shared the podium with those two guys. And uh, yeah, I don't know, just the whole day that I was super proud about it. And I, like, that's what I wanted so badly was when you, when there's a guy that just dominates a certain course and to be there and to be able to beat him and to have looked up to him for so many years and to really have studied a guy and then to kind of have math, had mastered the master plan a little bit better than he did. So that's, that's actually probably my, my most proud moment on skis. If you've ever dreamed of going to Wengen or Kitzbühel to watch the classic World Cup downhills, the ADL Ski Club is for you. Their small group trips are geared for passionate skiers and big race fans. They take you to the heart of ski racing's biggest races at the Laberhorn, Honenkamm, and Schladming Night Slalom. This year's trip to Wengen still has space available. If you and some friends want to experience one of the greatest classic downhills and do some big Swiss free skiing, just mention American Downhillers and save $800 now. Our own AJ Kid has been on both the Wengen and Kitzbühel trips. The ADL has a ton of special access passes to the races, parties, and athletes which make the Ski World Cup unique among all professional sports. Now is the perfect time to get your name on the list for this year's Wengen Lauberhorn trip or next year's Kitz trip. Visit ADL Ski Club, that's ADLSkiClub.com and reach out to them to secure your spot. Hey Manny, nice. where do you think you won that race? The Chaslot, I always, I always tried to win in the Chaslot and then, I don't know, maybe it was like two or three years in, I, I started thinking, you know, if I look at who does well here? There's actually only about three tenths that you can really crush it in there. And then if you actually crush it, it's you, it's like you don't have legs or something for the last two turns of the course, you know, the right footer and the compression and the left footer 
which the left footer is the last turn that you can create speed and get on the on the right line where you, maybe you can mitigate a couple edges going over the jump uh, into the last straight section. And so I, I kind of had studied there and I thought, okay, I'm not going to try and win the Charles lot at all. Um, but I had a plan where I was going to, I was going to exit Charles lot um, a little higher and then really be able to utilize the terrain and, and have the leg strength in there. And I really crushed those turns. I, the year before, um, I think I was third and I lost the race on those turns and I, and I had thought, okay, I got to give a little bit to get some. Um, but I, the, 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 the return that I won the race on, uh, was the return that I, the reason why I always did well in Valgardena and it's coming out of the compression at the top of the, uh, of the course, uh, the first big left footer. Uh, I just stayed on my left ski. I, I, I landed on my left ski. I stayed there. I stayed patient. And I took the, the max amount of depth that you could get on that turn to create as much speed for the flats. And I just, I totally nailed it. I literally, I went like another meter outside of the next line. And I just like, you know, when you stand on a ski, especially like downhill, when you stand on it, you stand on it well, and your jaw like literally kind of drops down to your knees a little bit. And you're like, and you got to like hold that. And, you know, <laughs> normally you don't want to do that on the flats, but I feel like that's the one turn you can get away with it. And I just, I went so deep and like my eyes, like, you know, your eyes shut and your jaw drops. And I, and I, and I touched the gate and I felt like I just nicked the gate and I was like, whoa, I got back to that. Like I had no idea where I was. And then I just, the, that first, that little jump going on the flats, like I went like another 10 meters farther than I, than I had any of the other days. And I was like, well, I'm cooking. Here we go. I like that analogy, man. And just feeling those G's and just getting, just resisting against those. And yeah, it's the, like it's the best. About that. Jaw dropping turn. Hey, ah. Jaw dropping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you got like, somebody asked me the other day, said, do you ever like when you're skiing, do you make noise and stuff like that? And I was like, I only made noise and grunts and stuff when, when I was tired and I just wanted my coaches to think I was trying, <laughs> but, but the other times are like, I probably had 10 turns in my career where I literally like the skeleton was stacked. There was no going anywhere. And you were just creating like as maxed out speed as like your equipment could create. And probably 10 times in, in, in my whole career, but every time, you know, the next split is yours by a couple of tenths, you know, like there's just nobody can, can get you. That's like the one thing. And, you know, you know me, I was I was only good on the flat. So generally I tried to have that dealt with at the bottom of some pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean about uh, about Shaw's lot. It's like that's a survival section for me, you know, and there's leg burn at, at Bormio. And there's a different kind of leg burn at Vangen. And there's a different kind of leg burn coming out of the Shaw's lot, depending on how much energy you have to expend to like stay on the ground and not like lawn dart into the front of one of those rollers. And, and, you know, I just remember coming out of, out of there always with my right leg into that compression, just going, Oh, I'm so glad this is the last time I got to use my right leg. And you go to the left leg and you got like a 15 second left leg turn that's accelerating from 60 to 85 miles an hour. I mean, there's nothing like it. It's the best downhill course. Like yeah, I, I just, so I just, you know, and I say it's the best pretty loose because they're all awesome. Right. Let's let's call a spade a spade there. But like the, the best part about Valgardena is that win or lose, everybody's got a smile on their face at the bottom, you yeah. know? And I think that's, 
that's where it's just it's just so fun to be in the air that many times i mean yeah. this is definitely like a left footers course too i mean there's you're coming to start you're kind of like just yeah. pumping off that left leg for like skating um what you explain at the top again going to that compression left foot yeah there's a few right footers, but mauer and then the chas lot and then the exit chas lot uh on the turbo road down the bottom but it's like i never really spanked that course but like you said I had a good smile on my face every time I came down that made it the finish line. And do you think that like, uh, it's interesting you say like the left footers, right footers, cause that's, that's generally like I, I did well on courses that, that uh, geared towards left footer, you know, like bang in. And I know those are our flatter courses as well, but I mean, even like Louise, I, I always, I mean, really, if you go through all the major turns in the world cup, it's probably 80% of the, the nasty turns the go-to turns are left footers but i don't know is that like uh are you i've literally like never thought about that before that'd be interesting yeah. to yeah you guys to, like, are blowing my mind that up. <laughs> <laughs> i always i always thought that i was like man there's so many left footers and thank god i'm left-handed you know i <laughs> just thought this is a little bit more to my advantage but Manny, the turn you're talking about coming onto the flats at Valgardena, that's a right footer after the compression the one where you really got to line it up. That's the big right footer, right? It's true. I mean, but like Marco, come on, you got to be good at both of the turns. Like there's only <laughs> two things you got to be good at in ski racing. You know, you got to be good at the left one and the right one. True. True. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I just interesting. I'm just asked Darren, like, what do you think? Like, did you ever uh, assess that? Maybe, maybe as much as I did or put any weight on that. On the left and right. Mm -hmm. No, it'd be interesting to throw together the stats on the lefts and rights on all the World Cup races, but it does seem like there's a lot of lefts, but there are also, also some important rights to nail. So, oh, there's some big important rights. I mean, look at the bottom of Kitzbühel, you know, like there's a bunch that are just like, the, the rights I almost find, there's more integral lefts that you gotta like nail, but the rights, there's like a minimal amount of rights, but those are ones that like usually have nasty spill zones are like, ones that you really have to like the one in Valgardana. if you don't do that right footer well i mean kiss the whole whole weekend goodbye manny go back to like uh you mentioned before trying to or you felt the bottom of the ski i have not heard that term before i'm just kind of interested in hearing like your kind of thoughts on what the bottom of the ski is well let me tell you something darren <laughs> Still I learned learn, buddy. about the bottom of the ski from somebody you would never ever think that i learned the bottom of the ski from yeah i i learned that from you and i i you told me this one time and then and then you were like i don't know you i mean i know you you were the steep master you struggled on the flats and then you're telling me this and i was like oh, i'm gonna try that one time so uh my first year and uh my first world cup because um you know you you might not even have known that I was this little kid, but like, you know, with Dale Stevens as a coach and everything on BC ski team, I, uh, I trained with the U S uh, world cup uh, team for, for quite a, some time in, in Chile, I went down for like a two week camp and ended up in Portillo for like seven weeks. And I just kept jumping with teams and, uh, and Darren, you were like, you know, the rock star to me, like always like the kindest person and like, just, just the man. And so when I made the world cup, uh, squad or my first World Cup. I hadn't made the team. I just got it my chance. 
um, you know, I always took my time and in inspection, which you did as well. So I think we just ended up uh, down there um, at the bottom section in, in Chamonix, uh, you know, and you probably just give me unsolicited advice because, uh, you know, I, who cares? I'm some guy in the back of the pack. And uh, it was, um, there was a right footer that kind of went, you did a compression, and then you went up the hill a little bit. And I was really struggling how to find the line there. And you were like, oh, I what I'm trying is I'm trying to go through the compression and then point my skis up the hill a little farther and then kind of angle my skis sideways a bit, like, and then ski down to the gate. And I don't know if that had just been something you were working on or whatever, um, but I tried it there and I was like, oh, well, if I ski sideways, I'm going to ski way faster. Like sideways is the fastest way to ski. And I, I crushed that section. I actually won that section in the race uh, by five tenths to the second guy. Yeah. It was Herman Meyer in my Game first sideways. race. I, I, I won that by half a second, that split. Going and sideways? Going sideways. And it's not, a, it's not a long split. It's, uh, it's about 12 seconds. And I won the 12-second split by half a second. To Herman Meyer, who I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. Darren's got all the secrets, you know? Let's go back to Valgardena for a sec. So um, in Valgardena, so we go across, we go through the compression, right foot across, and we hit the jump. So the next thing we do, we go uphill, and there's a little ridge there that we're going to get some looping, air on. Right? The looping jump. The looping jump. The looping jump. So it's it's a little nasty jump because it's sideways. And you got to stay in your tuck. It's so hard. But then on race day, you end up flying fairly far usually on that jump. And it's hard to stay in your tuck. And so I always kind of looked at that jump like, okay, like, where do I need to land? Because the next gate is man, 600 feet to like the next gate, right? So I would literally for like six, 300 feet. And then I was probably looking like 10 feet up. And I'd point my skis there, knowing that I had to, I had to tra travel sideways down to the gate. And I would just do that. So I, I would go that jump because it was it's it's on an on a, on a camber. I would actually just fly up the hill a little farther, so then I could stay in my tuck through the through the air there instead of trying to go straight and get twisted, which everybody does. I would actually just go up higher. And then I wouldn't fly as far because I was flying up the hill a little bit. And then I would, and then I would trend down across. And so that was like, that's just got a bit of a side hill. Same thing on the next one. I would take that a little deeper again. And then the ski would be loaded and it exits on a little, um, on a little ridge that you can, uh, that if you, if you come in with a loaded ski, I always felt like I could kind of hop up that. I could gain some speed there as well. And then same tactic you can start trending down halfway across that hill and then you can actually mitigate and not do an edge, one edge there. You can get away with not making an edge. And again, that is quite a bit faster. So that's kind of, that's, that's kind of what I started doing. And I just started skiing sideways all the all right, time. So breaking it down the way I'm looking at it, where you're explaining skiing sideways is trending or letting it drift. You're working, you're, you're, you're using the, the uh, gravity pole. Right, you're letting the mountain pull you down. So you're running, the, you're using the terrain, utilizing the terrain as much as possible. 
Yeah, you know, to see sideways, but you're just kind of like drifting with it, and um, buying the bottom of the ski would just be keeping as flat as possible. You're eliminating any uh, like edge pressure, correct? Correct. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I should probably change my terminology because I, you know, um, I just say ski sideways because you know I was just trying to be because then you tell people that. And they don't know what you're talking about. And then uh, well, AJ's been telling all the fist kids to ski sideways. <laughs> you know, I'm going like, to change my terminology. I'm going to call it the Canadian drift now. Yeah, yeah whatever, man. <laughs> well, the Canadian drift, the Manny drift. So that? I, I, I spent a lot of time on those flats, more than most, I think. And that when I would do that well, um, that that race, like I feel like if you can do that section well, and which lots of guys just kind of cruise on through you know that's that's like one third of the race up there and for a race like that being so meticulous on the on the top um it just made it so you can i just kind of was always consistently top 15 you know because i always had that section dialed and uh really from the first time i ever went there that's kind of what i started doing because it was from my first world cup really but yeah, uh, that sounds like a dinner conversation with bodie <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's like, like we know the gate you're talking about, but every listener is totally lost right now. <laughs> All right, sorry, my man. Anyway, so you know, and then I got on a steep pitch, and I'm like, I'm just like lost. You know, I'm like, man, my boots are too loose, and I don't know what I'm doing out here. <laughs> I didn't know there was so much math and so much geometry involved with ski racing. So stay in school, American Downer. <laughs> We've talked about the upper flats, the looping, how important it is, and the ches lot and that lower part. When we haven't even talked about the camel bumps, which define this course. Anybody here crash on those camels ever? Yeah, I did. Oh, you did? Man, yeah. hear did. about that. Well, actually, so the, the camels, um, man, there's been so many adventures off those bad boys. Were you going uh, sideways when you went off the camels? <laughs> no, I landed <laughs> it. I landed and then I crashed. Okay. That's good. Um, maybe you remember this, Robs, but I had a jumps my first couple of years. I, I, I mean, I made the team in slalom. I wasn't really a downhiller. And the next thing I know, it was like, I did seven weeks in Portillo. And then I was on the downhill tour. And I was like, man, like, I'm a downhiller. Like, I you remember Rosignol at the, that time only had the metal plate for, for, uh, for the World Cup guys. And the skis were like 10 pounds more. And I... I got to go to world cup and then I got those skis and literally like my first jump off Chamonix, uh, you know, they said it was like 20 meters. It was huge. And I, I'd never gone on to jump that big. And my skis just like my legs just because I had never been in the air that long. And I, I also had 20 pounds more <laughs> under my feet. I had no idea what I was doing. And so I, I, I was a little scared. And so I think I was really pumped that it, it was small that year. Um, and then the next year, the next year was that year that it went really big. And I, and I, that's where I got measured. Um, they measured me at 89 meters off that thing. And yeah. then they, that was when, um, that was huge. That was, that was the biggest jump I've ever done in, in my career. And that was the one it was, they put a lip on it. And then in the first training run, um, it, it was snowy and it was slow and like, it's, you know, it always gets faster and we were making it. It was pretty big. And it wasn't really a big deal. And then, um, and then the second training run, it had like rained a bit at night and it got cold and it was fast. It was super fast. And I was running, I think three and 
uh, Johnny Cachera and Walkoffer, I believe, were the two guys in front of me. And, you know, they went, I went, you know, and I went off that thing and I landed like, like onto the lip, right? Like when you're going to, so like I boosted it, like I landed into the compression and then boosted off it and the lip was huge. And I got to the landing point and I was still like 20 feet in the air. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is so not good. Like, this is like the worst case scenario. You know, like, I don't know if you guys ever had these. I always had these dreams. Um, in, in, I kind of had two nightmare dreams all the time throughout my career. One was that I would get to the start and I wouldn't have my ski boots. That was always like, a, and then I'd run around and never find them and I'd miss my start. And the other one is I would take off off jumps and I'd never land. I just end up in the, like up there, like in the valley. Oh, no. Like going down to Balzano and then landing there and having a ridiculous crash into a building, you know, and these were, these were like my two nightmares. And so literally I was living my nightmare in this jump. Um, I was up so high and, you know, on the camels, there's, um, there's the, the, the landing, the normal landing. And then there's like another little ridge down below, like, like a long ways down below. I landed on that ridge and I was super lucky because it gets a little steep right there. And if I hadn't, I like, that would have been two broken legs for sure. Like it was so big. And, uh, then they, they, they delayed it after that. And I got down to the bottom and walk and Johnny, they were both green. Like, we're all like, what happened? Like that was the most, that was the most insane thing ever. And they cut it like by like three feet, the lip, like they cut it so much. And it was still one of the biggest years. Yeah, right after that we went, they they shaved it down a lot and it was it was better because then it was low. And I mean you can go super far if it was low, right? It was just this lip. Um and then the following year I crashed on it. Yeah, I caught an edge in the compression. Um and it was it was it was driver error, as most crashes are, even if you like to think that they aren't um I uh I I think I went, uh I was I I got a little sloppy and you know you kind of have to redirect the skis before you go over the first camel. And I got a little sloppy and I thought I'd really could, could cut things off and I could, you know, land in my tuck and do, do a bunch of extra stuff that you probably shouldn't have time to do in the, in the compression. And I just, you know, I knocked my skis and I, I ended up like being able to catch myself out and I, um, I landed on one leg and then, and then kind of splatted on my back. And it wasn't as scary as I thought, just because probably I'd, cause I'd gone so big on the, the year before, um, but yeah, I mean, it was always, then it was always in the back of your mind. You know, that's always the the thing. Cause that's a, that's a big jump. Like on the best of days, that's a big jump. And uh, yeah, it's a must make, you need to, mu- you must make the landing. You don't want to case that, but then you don't want to go way big like that. One potential injury crash and two, you, you just out jump it. You're losing speed. Hey, Doug Lewis here. And I want to talk about the American downhiller speed camp. American Downhiller is the leader in teaching young ski racers how to go fast and have fun. 2023 will mark the sixth annual American Downhiller Speed Skills Camp in Mammoth Mountain. Our speed camp is coached exclusively by current and former World Cup racers and coaches who are passionate about helping the next generation of athletes achieve their dreams. We specifically focus on aerodynamics, jumping technique, speed tactics, and the mental training required to safely navigate Super G and downhill race courses. If you are a ski racer who wants to go fast, check out our website, americandownhiller.com, for all specific camp dates. 
why were the why were the Canadians so notoriously dominant and successful in, in um, Belgradena? What what are your thoughts about that? I mean, from, I mean, I don't know what the string is, the stats, but it seems like Canadians have always been really successful there. I looked it up. Boyd had a couple oh, wins. Yeah. And then on the podium, Reed, Brooker, Podovinsky, Kuchera, Manny, obviously, Podborski, Stemmel, Hudetz, Gay, all of them on the Crazy, podium. Yeah. So I was talking to Berkey in um, Beaver Creek about Belgardana. Mm-hmm. And he said that he would have his guys, I'm sure you're part of this, go out and go for warm up, go to the test track mm-hmm. or go someplace where you're just doing gliding. You're not dealing with the GS or Super G warm up course. But he was a, a big um, proponent of just trying to get a good feel, get the bottom of that ski feel for warming up before the race. I mean, we would definitely do that. The, actually, that's that's true. Um, I'm I'm I was forgetting that we literally every day on that of those races, um, every day, every year that I had him, we would go with the test track guys on the other side of the valley in the morning, and we would we would test track always. Um, and I felt like he actually thought that, you know, we, we'd been in North American snow and I know that Beaver Creek and Lake Louise snow is, is quite different, but then there's another, it's another snowpack altogether once we hit Europe and yeah, just getting the mileage. I mean, it's, uh, we, but we did that consistently, consistently with him. I, yeah, I kind of forgotten about that. You know, you're trying to forget about all these, these things sometimes, but um, yeah, we did that a lot. And then we would usually go over and there was a period when we were younger that we would only warm up on slalom skis. I did like a whole downhill season only on slalom skis. Uh, and then, um, and Wait, then what I, kind of skis? on slalom skis. What, what are those? <laughs> yeah. you know, different I can tell you, AJ, the worst really? thing to warm up on before Vengen is slalom. Like, you're trying to mitigate how many turns you do, right? Like it's all conservation. Save the legs. Yeah, not not when you're on slalom skis, man. But uh, yeah, yeah, Berkey would have us do the glide track. Um, we'd go up and do our warm up on the other side. But I, you know, to be honest, I think like if I had to narrow it down to to one thing, um, I just think we had we had confidence there, and it just trickled through each each generation on the on the teams um you know i just knew when we went there that we just did well um and now i, w- I don't want to say like i think like you know we're, we're we're talking about the canadian team here I, I like if there's ever a race that it's a north american race i mean that's that's the one right like we, the americans and the canadians are in the same hotel and we've all had like huge success there and I think it just it it's just the aura of like our nations together in that hotel. We've always gotten along. We've always been good friends. And when when you have a group of people that are just humming in a room, you know, like we're not talking like, OK, there's been tons of podiums, but there's been like a ton of careers made there and personal bests. And, you know, all lots of guys that, you know, we're never going to like you we know them because of teammates but nobody's going to know their names like you know they they got to live their dreams and they get their best results there and like do a race that maybe they were never going to be technically good enough to to bomb down kits and and do well but like they could go there 
and like fulfill their childhood dreams and like to be in a hotel um you know especially i feel like for 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 me and again i you know i get sentimental with 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 d here but you know we we were a young team right like when we started on the world cup and it was like johnny frankie eric uh myself i think there was just four of us at the beginning beginning uh you know eric was the oldest at 22 and then we were all 19 and 20 and so we didn't have anybody older to really lead the way and uh you know i think like having some veterans there having bodie having darren uh helped us a lot especially in our transition through that like a you know lull in our in our ski team and and uh man i i think like it, it was always fun when I mean, we celebrated when you know all of nyman's victories you know uh marco you were on the podium there i was fourth there twice right <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was always a good one but never a podium what like what a what a time what a time and i think it just uh but it's it's totally the confidence like we kind of just i feel like we always just went over there and we kind of knew that there was always success and i just never second guessed it it was just kind of the place that we were going to have that yeah i think it's a good point to make just like how strong that like that culture, you know, that vibe and everything puts you in a good place. You know, the whole culture there. I mean, even like the Babs and, and you know, the guys that run the hotel, you know, they also, they come there and they expect that we're going to be on the podium, you know? And I think like when you have a group, like how many hotels you go to and they're like a bunch of people that are just not even going to watch the race, you know? And then you go into this and they're like, what can we do to help you succeed, you know? And it's just such a great environment to be in, you know, that, you know, video was uh, collaborative. Uh, you know, I, I felt like there, there were times when young racers came up to me uh, on our team, on the U S team, and you totally had time for them. Uh, one year I was struggling a bunch in a section and Nyman came over and like chucked on his video and was like, Hey, let's figure this out together. Like, I think we like, you know, we really, we really bonded. And for a group that doesn't, you know, work together all the time. I think, you know, we nobody ever had any egos, nobody had any problems with anybody. And it was just a really, it's a great atmosphere and really, it was a really good um, start to, to our time on the road. I mean, we really, you know, that was going to be the time that we, we were going to be away from our families and we kind of, you know, exited with, uh, with a lot of camaraderie within our groups. So, yeah, I think it just, it all stems from you know, it, everybody gets results in ski racing because of, of teamwork. You know, it's an individual sport, but teamwork. And the more people you surround yourself with that you want to help, they want to help you, you put your egos aside, you're just going to get better at skiing. Like, it's just period. End of story, you know. Marco, you were part of some American groups where they had four in the top 10 or five in the top 15 um, through that period at Valgaradena. Can you speak to teamwork or confidence or why? Well, I think, I mean, Manny nailed it pretty well with the whole camaraderie there. And I think that one time when we had five Americans in the top 10, then there was like three Canadians as well. You know, we stacked like almost swept the top 10 with North Americans. It was unbelievable. Um, I'm just thinking about this year, the downhill season is actually going to start with Valgardena, you know, with all these cancellations. And it could be like an amazing start for the North Americans to go in there with confidence, have some great results and just build on that as they go into Borromeo and then getting kids. And it you know, could be set the base for a really good year for all these guys. Wind produces a sophisticated line of ski and snowboard waxes 
for use by skiers, riders, racers, and shops. The current WEND snow wax formulations have come from over 50 years of progressive blend reformulation and on-slope and in-lab testing. This has been in conjunction with the feedback of some of the world's top ski and snowboard athletes. Athletes who know real speed, like Kitzbühel champ Darren Rolves and 2019 Birds of Prey GS champion Tommy Ford. WEND no longer sells any products containing fluorocarbon compounds and instead utilizes natural, plant-derived and or biodegradable additives that substantially increase the overall eco-friendliness of the WEND Snow Wax product line. Give WEND a follow on Instagram at WEND Waxworks and purchase your WEND products at WENDPerformance.com. And don't forget to use the code ADH20 for 20% off your purchase. Manny, I don't know if you know the history, but you know, you got Cameron Alexander, James Crawford, Seeger, Reed. It seems like this has been a slow build on the the new Canadian team. Is this was that something that um, was planned? Uh, had a or is it just kismet that these athletes are coming all together and finding their speed right now? You know, this is it's it's kind of it's cool you bring that up. You know, this is um, I think. You know, all these guys, uh, you know, Crawford's from Ontario, but then he moved to to Whistler when he was pretty young. You know, these guys are all BC athletes. And this is kudos, I think, to uh, Bruce Goldsmith for his his years. And, and he, Bruce was uh, the president of BC Alpine when, when I was on that team. But BC has brought up so many athletes, and he was just such a great fundraiser. That's what he did just better than better than anybody and he raised a lot of money uh he created great partnerships with with sponsors uh great relationships with them where when he left um and and Anders took over uh that uh, who was the who was the one of the coaches for the Norwegian teams prior to to that uh transition um you know he was able to to maintain those relationships and keep a really well run team and then that team you know they they had Nick Cooper at one point, they've got Johnny Crichton. Uh, they've got Morgan Pretty now, who was one of our, our guys who also did really well in, uh, in Valgardana. I think he had a couple top tens in Valgardana in the Super G. So they just, they just stacked, they, you know, they were able to build a, a quality budget and then they, 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 uh, they complemented that with good coaching staff over the years. And these guys are all just pipelined from that one team. So I think, you know, it, it was a planned up. No, but like it, uh, we, it, I think we were all very lucky that um, there was guys like Broderick, uh, especially Broderick, because he kind of, he, he was able to experience even Jack actually for last year, they were able to experience the work ethic and, and um, you know, the key points of mastery. I think that our team had kind of taken, um, had kind of figured out that we had to reinvent because of, of a, a, you know, a little bit of a lapse in our, in our world where I think those guys were able to pass on what they, what they wanted to use and what they wanted to recycle and what they wanted to make their own. And then, and then they, then these guys just kind of surged up from underneath. And I think they, they're, they're, you know, they're a really great group of, of guys that are, are forging their own path. Like they're definitely not doing it the way we did it. They're doing it their way. It's their group. And, and it's super admirable. I really think that uh, these guys, these guys have worked up from, from this, this pipeline together and to, to maintain this and, and to keep fighting and to not, 
be not accept the status quo. I think, you know, that's one of the biggest things, right? Like that you, you've got to constantly get better. And it just seems like these guys um, are, are really doing a great job and they complement each other so well, you know, Jack was such a, a, a technician, you know, and then these other guys, gliders and risk takers, and they've all seemed to like jive with what, what they have in, um, in common and, and what they bring to the table and really trying to culminate that all together. So it's, it's cool to see, but it's definitely, um, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to Bruce Goldsmith, I think, um, for, for creating, um, a quality program that can withstand the test of time. One of the neat things that, that Manny, that you said about the guys that are there now is there's each guy kind of has his own sort of premier characteristic that he's really good at, whether it's technical or gliding or whatever. And if a group can work together collaboratively like that, and the guy that's the best at gliding can help the other guys get a little bit better, and the guy that's the best at turns can help all the guys get a little bit better, everybody gets better um, by helping each other. And uh, that, to me, is the the essence of a really great, strong team and a, and a strong culture. Um, they clearly have it. Uh, they've been coming on for a few years. It's been evident that the Canadians are have been doing something right for for a number of years, and, and they're, they're feeling the fruits of that right now. Um, they're the class of the field here at the Norams. Um, they, they, you know, Seeger's been running, uh, you know, for running, getting some reps in. Uh, the Alexanders have been really fast. Um, Kyle won today. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really kind of it's neat to see that from the outside. And from our side, I think, you know, we've got to help them do that. Uh, we've got to, you know, just support uh, by, by bringing up more fast athletes. And I think just really hope that, that the culture building that's going on within the U.S. ski team is going to work. I, I mean, I, I look at like Johnny Kachera for, for an example. I mean, this guy was unheard of uh, his whole career. I mean, he kind of just slumped into the Alberta team, uh, slumped his way onto the national team, like really didn't, wasn't exceptional at, at anything. And then, uh, you know, was good enough to make each team. And then one summer, for whatever reason, you know, just crushed it. And then went to Lake Louise for the Norams. And I remember he won both Super G's and he was second in both downhills, got his spot, made the World Cup, was top 30 by the end of the year and um, never looked back, you know. Pipelines matter huge. I think pipelines matter. Uh, they're, they're absolutely the, the core of, of, of how to get people to the World Cup. And, you know, if it was an easy answer, you know, we could all sit here and talk about how, how easy that is and who should do what and what should be different. But, uh, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's, you know, these athletes, they're, they're all talented and they're all amazing skiers. It's just like, who can get it to all click, right? Like who can, and what does that mean? That means something different for everybody, right? Yeah. And like you said, none of it ever happens overnight. Nobody just suddenly appears to be fast. Um, it, it, it appears that way, but it, it doesn't happen that way. It takes a lot of repetition, a lot of mileage and a lot of years. And finally, when it begins to click, like you talked about with Kuchera, um, then that's when it appears like it just happened overnight. But really, if you got to look back at all the mileage that was put in, all the building blocks that were put into that foundation for such a long period of time, and then you can move forward with, with the strong foundation that you can then, you know, you can attack and you can have a, a successful period out of. Yeah, yeah. You, hit, you hit one good race too, and then bam, you're on the scene because at that point, you know you belong. And I think that's the biggest thing is yeah, you, you don't really know you can like 
compete with these top dogs you've been watching for a while until you're in the mix with them. And then you do that, it's like, hey, I'm in there. So maybe the easy answer is we got to start put together like a thrills tape of all the kick-ass Canadians and Americans that have done well all these races. And those guys just kind of like watch that stuff go down and like, hey, we own this place. Let's do it. And I really feel like the power of the mind, you can will yourself to speed and uh, be feel good in that place and have that culture of just generations of your own teammates that paved the, paved the way in the past. Like, it's like, hey, why can't I do it? Why can't we do it? And then let's do it, you know, and, and get it done. But Darren, I, re I really like the, the fact that it always – you grind, you grind, you grind, and then there's that one breakthrough. Uh, for me, it was in Whistler in 1984, my first top 10. All the all the um, energy was about Bill Johnson and, and uh, Zerbriggen and all that. And boy, you know, I just, I was the underdog, had no expectations, and, and finally broke through. For each of you, what was that one race where finally it clicked? It you want to go chronologically? Chronologically. <laughs> The timeline. Fullest the youngest. Um, I have to say, I had two races. One, um, you know, I was, I think I was starting outside the 30, and I, but I, you know, I was banging away. And, you know, Cortina is normally a, a ladies' race, but because of cancellations and weather, they, they sent us over there and um, had a couple of okay training runs the first race. I had some good training runs in the top 10, but the first race I was like 17th. I was really pissed off about that. And in the next race, I was just like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to go. And I ended up fourth and it was what put me into the, into the first seed world ranking for the first time ever. Um, and I think later that year I ended up, I think I ended up fourth or fifth in, in Ore in the, in the finals. And sort of with those two races, I kind of felt like, okay, I'm here. I'm established in the top 15 and I'm not leaving. You know, that gave me the confidence to feel like, like I could be there. D money. I like that AJ. I'm here and I'm not, and I'm not leaving. <laughs> you know, that attitude. Um, I had, uh, let's see, 21st and Whistler and super G. So I kind of like was in the points and then went back to some Norams and I went in two Noram races and was shipped to Kvithfield overnight, you know, to get there for a super G and starting, I think it was 34th. And um, Kyle Rasmussen pegged it to good run and all this chatter and hypes going off on the radio. And, and um, I was actually sick. I was buckling my boots and my head would plug up and I wasn't feeling good from the travel over. I think it was just like a matter of no expectations. Just going to go out and ski as hard as I can for a minute and a half and see what happens. And I ended up uh, finishing right behind Rass in fourth. And that was another big, you know, just move for me just showing that like, Hey, I, I can compete with these guys now. And, and that, that, that was, a, that was a big step for me. I think for me, uh, I actually got it in training or my first year on the world cup, we were training when we used to train at Beaver Creek instead of copper and early season, there was like no snows. So everyone was training one course on the front of Beaver Creek and the Austrians were training with us, Norwegians, our whole team. And I had like some fast Solomons that year and I was smoking everyone in training. And like when we had Hans Knaus on the podcast last year, he was, he remembers that there was this young American kid who was like beating Herman, beating Everhart. And uh, all of a sudden I was like, if I just ski and, you know, these guys are 
like my they're superheroes in my mind but you can actually hang with them and uh it didn't totally translate to the race season but i had like some good results you know, a couple of top 15s um right off in lake louise beaver creek my first year and uh i kind of broke down that door of being confident and being able to like tell myself that I was there and I could do well. So I didn't have to wait too long to really be like too scared of those guys. I could charge right off the bat. I've got my downhill and my super G with downhill. I was, I was kind of fortunate because the, my first year world cup, I think it was the only year we did this, but uh, you qualify, you, you, uh, they, we flipped the training run results to the start that year. And uh randomly i mean not randomly but i was just good enough when i got into world cup that i could i could get like 29th 30th if i just crushed the run and uh so chamonix my first world cup i i ended up i think i was 21st or something in the training run which then started me you know ninth in the race of my first world cup and uh and then i ended up finishing 14th but i i i almost fell and i i had to come back to make it over the over the road and at that point i was in second at the road i was in second and i ended up 14th and so i was very close to getting a podium in my first race um i just literally i screwed up like the easiest gate but the biggest wow thing i think there and which was super cool was that um in Chamonix that you go up the chair and it, the old chair was kind of over going over the, over the run. And I was looking on the first training run because I was starting in on the weed. So I was going up when they were going down. I was like, well, these guys aren't that good. That's all they're doing. You know, you don't use, you, you see them on TV and they look so good and it's the right camera angle and all that stuff. And I'm like, these guys just look like Noram guys that are just adults, you know, like, and I just, from that point, I was like, Oh, I, I can compete with these guys. This is, these are the same guys as me. And then AJ, I think like, you know, like for Super G, it was in 09 and in, in uh, Lake Louise. I uh, I was I was going to start, uh, I was 31st on the start list and I was going to start like so far back. My my Super G points were were terrible because I had just not been getting in in Super G. It had been three years on the World Cup and I had the worst fist points. Like it was just, I... You know, I, I had an okay race here, you know, 20th and 25th and like, but like nothing to get me in the top 30 and bad and bad enough that I was not getting fist points. And so I was going to start like third, fourth, last in the race, like really bad. And um, I think it was Sanders. He, um, he crashed in the, uh, in the downhill and he was kind of wavering. Oh, can I race the super G? Can I, and um can I can I not and I actually like I went to his room and I was like dude like are you racing or are you not like don't be lazy about this like because you know if you if you don't race you know I get to be in the top 30 right and if you do but like if you're fine but like I saw him hobbling through the hotel like, I, like he was nearly on crutches and um and then Berkey um was it Berkey no it was Lionel Lionel talked to their coaches and just like they you know they talked it over and ended, they ended up pulling him from the start and that put me in the top 30 and then I drew three three or seven might have been seven anyways in the top seven uh and then I won the race so I had been battling from the back just trying my best in super g for so long and grinding you know from the last place to like 20th 
And all along, that was good enough to win a damn race. Doug Lewis here. If you are a U12, U14, or U16, Elite Team Fitness Camps are for you. This is not your average fitness camp as we teach the vital skills of sports psychology and sports nutrition, along with tough, challenging workouts. You will leave camp with more power, strength, and agility, with a deeper understanding about nutrition, and with the mental skills of confidence, focus, and pushing limits, which will take you to the next level. Over our 30 years, we have coached Olympic champions, World Cup stars, NCAA champions, including USK teamers Michaela Schifrin, Lauren Masuga, Alice Merriweather, Jimmy Krupka, Grace Henderson, and Sammy Worthington. And finally, although we push our limits to the edge, we have a ton of fun. We are holding two week-long sessions this July at the Killington Mountain School. Find all the info at EliteTeam.com. All right, I'm ready for my picks if you guys want to go. Marco. I'll go. You're on the spot. Bryce Bennett, number one. Alexander Kilday, number two. Nils Hinterman, number three. All right. Those are Marco's <laughs> picks. Darren, you want to go next? All right. Uh, I'm going Marco, the other Marco, Marco Odomat. Uh, number one, Kilday, two. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling some North American, you know, not just pride, but Cam Alexander, I'm going to go with him. I think he's got a good build for that and, you know, fast kid. So, the Canadian on the podium. All right. Uh, I'm going to go Canadian on the podium, James Crawford, coming through. Uh, I'm going to go Odermott in second. He's still not going to win his first downhill World Cup. And then I'm going the big man, Creekmeyer, because he can really absorb all the jumps. So, it's between us through. There's a there's a 500 bucks on the line. So. There you go. All <laughs> right. What? <laughs> American Downhill is putting $500 up for the prize purse. I like 500 Grindle Shanks, whatever those are. So for the U.S. and Canadians, it starts this week at Val Gardena. They're under the radar. They're at a place they love. And uh, it is the fresh start. It will be the first speed races of the year, hopefully. So let's hope the Canadians and the U.S. find their groove. So thanks, everybody, for listening and watching to our American Downhiller podcast. Special thanks to Manny Osborne Parody, who was part of the Canadian Cowboys in their heyday and was always a fun character on World Cup. Please spread the word about our podcast. Share with your friends, coaches, teammates, and clubs. You can find us either on Spotify or Apple or on our YouTube channel. And thanks to our American Downhiller sponsors, ADL Ski Club. Wend Wax, Elite Team Fitness Programs, and American Downhiller Camps. Stay tuned for more American Downhiller podcasts. For AJ, Darren, and Marco, thanks for listening.